Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Turn to Ephesians 6. It is my intention that we will finish the book of Ephesians this morning. Next week, we will continue on this particular series that we are in now, where we are comparing and contrasting and reading through both Ephesians and Colossians, because they are sister epistles written at the same time, sent to two churches that were very close to each other. Colossae is just east of Ephesus, and so it makes sense that as Tychicus was making that journey to Ephesus, that he would also go to Colossae, and that Paul would write letters to both of those churches. And so as sister epistles, there is a lot of similar theology, but there is also a lot of additional stuff that Paul's going to cover when we get to the book of Colossians. But we needed to have the groundwork. We needed to have the foundation in what he wrote in the book of Ephesians because he expected that to be an encyclical letter that would go around to all the churches. So he has already laid out for us the first three chapters of indicative, indicative, indicative. Hopefully you all know what that is. That indicates who you are. You are the chosen. You are the elect of God. You are the ones who he decided on before the foundation of the world. You are those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That's who you are. And then once Paul identified who you are and the theology that saved you, the God who saved you according to his own will, his own desires, after that he moved into, and how should you react to that? So from chapter 4 forward, we've been reading things about how you should walk according to that high calling of Jesus Christ in your life. So you ought to walk, you ought to behave according to your knowledge of the calling that is on your life. But as he's wrapping up the letter, we're going to get a little glimpse into Paul's worldview, if I can use that terminology. Paul was living in a very, very wicked culture. In the book of Acts, we read about how he went into Athens and how grieved he was over all the temples to all the various different gods. He's living among the Jews who he has even said to them, since you did not count yourselves worthy, I'm now going to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. So he's dealing with wicked Jewish people who don't want to give up their traditions, their history. They don't believe in Christ, and so therefore they're killing Christians, which Paul himself originally was doing. And so there is a lot of pressure coming to Paul from the Jewish segment of society, but then he's also living under Roman dominion. And at this point in the history of Roman dominion, it is a wicked dominion. It is an evil dominion where even the Caesar is considered to be a god 
who deserves to be worshipped. And of course, they have their entire pantheon of gods that they basically just stole from the Greeks, renamed, and then set up as their own Roman gods. It's the same pantheon with many of the same stories. And so there's all this mythology. So there's all of this false worship going on. To say nothing of the depravity that was going on in Roman leadership, you've probably heard names like Caligula in your life. That was the level of depravity that was going on in Roman leadership. So Paul was dealing with a really wicked world. And so his worldview was that because of man's depravity, that when men rule over other men, that leadership can't help but be corrupted and depraved. 2,000 years later, things are so much better. (laughs) 2,000 years later, I think we can look around at the world that we live in and say, yeah, same deal. Corrupt human beings ruling over other corrupt human beings leads to corrupt societies. And in America today, I know I've cited these examples many times over the last few years especially. But if you look at the things that our culture, that our society considers not only preferable, but also constitutional, the things that they say are legal and the things that have become human rights are things that go contrary to what the Bible says. The word of God says, don't kill. So we made it a constitutional right that you can kill your baby. That if your baby is still in the womb, which should be the safest place for a baby to reside, but as long as the baby is still in the womb, you can, you can kill it if you want to. It's a woman's right. Okay, that would be completely contrary to what God says, that he is the one who gives children to women. He is the one who places children in the womb. He's the one who says, don't do any murder. So we as humans together have decided to do that. Uh, The Bible says things like marriage is one man, one woman. Our society has said, it doesn't have to be that way. You can marry anybody you want. I've used the example before that there was a woman in Texas who married a train station. And that's absolutely true. And, and nobody blinked. It was like, well, you know, it's her choice, whatever she wants. The Bible says there are two genders. Life tells you there's two genders. I don't know if any of you saw it this week, but there was a congressional hearing in which one of the congressmen was interviewing one of the officiates there in Washington, D.C., And apparently there is new word usage where they are no longer specifying people by gender. They were now referring to them as childbearing people or non-childbearing people. And so the... What? Birthing people. That was the phrase. Exactly. Birthing people or non-birthing people. And what I enjoyed was in the interview, one of the congressmen asked, okay, define what is a birthing person? And the person being interviewed went into apoplexy attempting not to use the word woman. (laughs) 
that's all they had to say was birthing person that's that's a woman because that's what the Bible says the Bible says there's men and there's women the people who give birth are the women it's really that clear but not to our society not to our culture the Bible says so many things like that people ought to be honest and they shouldn't tell lies God even set out commandments about it not suggestions but commandments about just don't lie don't steal don't long after the things that belong to your neighbor that you don't have be content with the things that you have uh, that's just not the way the human beings work instead we're lying our faces off collectively and uh, stealing should I say anything more about taxation Anyway, our world runs on a very contrary bent to everything the Bible says. The Bible talks about righteousness and holiness and fairness and justice and not taking bribes and making sure that you treat everybody fairly regardless of their station in life or in society. But none of those rules that the Bible lays out seem to be the predominating rules and parts of our culture these days. Okay, now, that was all just introductory commentary so that you could get into Paul's mindset because now the question is, okay, it is a wicked world. Okay, it is an upside-down world. Okay, it is a stupid world. Okay, things are happening in the world these days, right now, that are just inexplicable. How can these things actually be happening? Well, according to Paul, that's not just human error. According to Paul, that's not just because Adam fell. According to Paul, that's not just because of human depravity. According to Paul, it's because there is this large, sweeping, powerful, demonic influence in the world. And we need to be aware of it. We need to be conscious of the fact. Paul does not say, remember everything I told you at the beginning of the letter, how you're secure in Christ, how you're safe because you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, how God has already chosen you for salvation, and therefore you don't have to worry about the evils of this world. Instead, at the end of his letter, he says, now knowing who you are and knowing how you're supposed to act, Realize that you're going to come up against a great deal of opposition, but that opposition is not just coming to you from other people who just happen to disagree with you and are on Facebook at the same time you are. Instead, what this is, is genuine demonic activity going on in the world, and you need to be prepared for the fact that there is going to be this onslaught of horrific demonic ideas, ideals, temptations coming at you all the time and that you need to be prepared to withstand it. We're starting in chapter 6, verse 10. If it were left up to you, if it's just you and let's say the demonic horde, Satan and some of his minions, and it's the two of you in a grudge match, in a cage match. Who's going to win? You by your own strength, you by your own decaying flesh, you by your own inability to think holy thoughts, 
you're no match if it's just you against Satan who's been alive so much longer than you have for the vast eons who knows how to tempt you, who knows how to deceive you, who knows how to lie to you. The one who in the book of Genesis we're told he's more subtle than all the other beings. He knows how to trick you. He knows how to tempt you. He knows all that. And so Paul starts right out by saying it's not by your own strength that you are supposed to stand against the wiles of the devil. Instead, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the only way that you're going to be able to withstand the fiery darts of Satan. He's going to speak of those fiery darts in a moment. The only way you're going to be able to withstand the temptations of this world, the only way that you're not going to become overthrown by the prince of the power of the air, the only way that you're not going to give in to the evil of this world is if you have the power of God Almighty inhabiting you. If you have the Holy Spirit who is a governor on your behavior, unless you have God and his strength, unless you have him to rely on, you're no match for Satan. Want me to prove it? Everybody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God in them is the whole rest of the world. Have a look at how the world is going. That's why I began where I began, by saying the world is insane. Why is the world insane? Because they are no match for the prince of the power of the air, who is doing whatever he can get away with, seeking whom he may devour, going about like a roaring lion. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who said to Jesus, just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus did not counter him and say, they're not yours to give. Jesus realized that the kingdoms of the world were under the power, the sway, the influence of Satan himself. And in fact, Paul is about to say that same thing. So recognizing that, knowing that, knowing the incredible depth of evil that Paul is about to describe, he knows that we human beings are not going to be able to withstand it. The only strength, the only power, the only hope that we have is the power of God. And so we rest in God. We rest in God's word. We recognize, yes, that we're chosen by God. We're elected by God since before the foundation of the world. We get that. But we're also forced to live on this planet for our three score and ten, some of us even more. And so while we're here living on this planet, how do we live? How do we survive without losing our faith, without losing our confidence, without losing our minds? How do we do that? Well, it's not by us. It's not by our flesh. Because our flesh is weak. Jesus said it. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, I'll prove it to you. When was the last time you got up and said to yourself, okay, this is it. This is the day that I stop whatever my perpetual sin is, whatever I've been doing that I'm just determined to break away from. Today is the day. Did you make it by the end of the day? Usually not because your flesh is weak. That's it. Today, I'm giving up sugar. 
That's it. No more sugar for me, except in my coffee now, because i got to wake up, you know. And it's just so easy for us to say in our minds, you know, our spirit, our thinking, our cognitive abilities are very willing. Today I'm going to be godly. Today I'm going to walk holy. Today I'm going to do all the right stuff. By the end of the day, God is going to be so proud of me. And what do we make it, five or ten minutes? <laughs> That's just the way our human flesh is. So unless we are relying utterly and completely on the strength and the preserving power of the God who bought us, we're going to be overthrown. So Paul starts there. That's the first thing he wants you to know. Before he even gets into describing the darkness of this world, he wants you to know that your only hope is in the strength and power of God. Your strength is not in you. Doing better, working harder, improving yourself. That doesn't work. Only the strength of God is going to be any help to you. And then he's going to say that you need to put on armor. That is the language of going into battle. You don't need armor for sitting in a lazy boy watching TV. You need armor for going into war. And so Paul is about to say, wear your armor as you go into these battles. And then he's going to describe typical armor that a Roman centurion would be wearing. He starts by describing a girdle that would cover your loins. And then he describes a breastplate that covers your vital organs and your heart. The next thing you would obviously want to do is put something on your feet. Then he describes a helmet. As I'm saying that, you can imagine a Roman soldier in your mind, can't you? And you can see him with his girdle and his breastplate and his helmet. And then Paul says, and carry a shield. And he's going to describe the shield. And then carry a sword which is the only offensive weapon he describes. Everything else is defensive. And then being fully engaged in the battle, being fully dressed for the battle, he says, then, having done all that you can do, stand. Stand firm in the knowledge that the strength of God is preserving you through this earthly battle. Now, why do you need all that? Why do you need to have your loins girded? Why do you have to have a breastplate? Why do you have to have a helmet on and a shield in front of you? Why do you have a sword in your hand? Why would you need all that? Well, it's because of how powerful, how horrific the evil of this world actually is. And because we live in this world, we've just gotten used to it. We've just become accustomed to how this world is, how it acts, and the things that God sees as abominable, we see as everyday life. And we just plow through this world. So Paul is going to describe what we need to do to protect ourselves, and then he's going to tell us how truly, genuinely wicked this world is, and then he's going to describe each piece of our armor and describe it as another quality of being genuinely Christian. So you ready for it? Ready. You ready to engage the battle? 
because the description that Paul uses is absolutely mind-boggling and bone-chilling. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Diabolos, the one who divides, the accuser of the brethren. Satan, that's what his name means, the accuser. The one who stands before God day and night accusing the brethren. Who has schemes, according to Paul. He's not just randomly throwing stuff at you. He knows you well enough. He's witnessed your behavior enough. And he knows your corruption enough to know what's going to attract you. What's going to pull your attention away from holy and righteous things. He knows how to tempt you away. He knows how to get you to play around on the edges of genuine evil. He's subtle. He deceived Eve, and he's been in the deceiving business ever since. So you need to put on the full armor. In other words, you need to put on everything that Paul is about to describe. He's going to use the allegory of a Roman centurion dressed for battle. But in his allegory, he's going to explain what every portion of that protective gear represents. So put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Not give in to the devil's schemes. Not give in to the temptations. Now notice again that Paul recognizes that it's a battle. I don't fault people for falling into sin. I know that people are going to fall into sin. It's, it's the weakness of our flesh. It's the natural depravity that courses through our veins that we do get tempted away and that we do fall into sin. I don't blame people for that. But I do expect them to engage the battle. I do expect them to recognize that they are behaving in sinful ways, that they're being rebellious, and I expect them to repent. That's why repentance is such an important element of genuine Christianity. I do expect people to repent of their errant ways and then turn, which is what repentance means, turning 180 degrees away from yourself and toward God. I do expect people to engage the battle. Paul expects people to engage the battle. And as long as I see people engaging in the battle, I have hope for them. I believe that they actually do have the Spirit of God inside them, drawing them and preserving them and causing them to have faith and repentance. And so I can have hope for those people. The people that really worry me are the people who engage in continual rebellion and just don't really seem to be trying to change. Too often they'll give you an excuse for why they are that way. Too often they'll rewrite what the Bible has said. Too often they'll say, well, maybe it used to be a sin, but it's not so sinful anymore because now we're smarter. We have computers. I'll leave that right where I left it. Put on the full armor of God 
that you may be able to stand firm against the wiles, against the schemes of the devil. The one who has been alive a lot longer than you, who has been running contrary to the righteousness and holiness of God for a very long time, what kind of schemes could he dream up? He's a lot smarter than you are. He's a lot more experienced than you are. And he knows what works. So you have to be prepared. You have to put on the full armor of God to be prepared for the fact that the devil is scheming to try to bring you down. For our struggle, our warfare, our wrestling in this life is not against flesh and blood. Whether we're talking about your flesh and blood or whether we're talking about the flesh and blood of people on earth and the way they behave and the way that their behavior can be a temptation to you. Either way, Paul says, in the end, what we're struggling with as Christians, as people who are walking around in dying, decaying, corrupted flesh, who also are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, you've got corruption and holiness living together. Of course there's going to be a battle. There better be. There better be a battle. And yet that battle, that struggle that's going on in our lives is not ultimately about flesh and blood. It's about wickedness in spiritual places. Here Paul put it this way. We do not struggle against flesh and blood. Which, by the way, means it's not ultimately our government that's the problem. It's not ultimately our society that's the problem. It's not ultimately other people and their opinions. Sure, those are all problems, but why are they problems? Why do they think the way they do? Why do they act and behave the way they do and then impose their thoughts and ideas on you? Why are they trying to make you conform to the world and its sinful ways and draw you away from Christianity? Why? According to Paul's writing in Romans, he says that the unrighteous press down righteousness, hold it down, try to suppress it. Okay, why? Why are they doing that? Is that just a flesh and blood problem? Is that just because they woke up one day and said, I don't like that whole Christian thing, so I'll suppress it? Paul says the reason it's happening is because we wrestle against principalities and powers. The NASB says rulers and powers. Let's start with the idea of principalities. You'll see as this list continues that Paul is clearly talking in the negative. He is not describing angels. He is not describing principalities and powers that are principalities of righteousness and heavenly powers. Instead, he is describing demonic, dark, sinister, fallen, demonic principalities and powers. The prince of the power of the air. Okay, that's a principality. 
In the air indicates that it means it's, it's permeating, it's everywhere. It covers the planet the same way that the air covers the planet. The influence of Satan is in the whole world. So our struggle is against principalities and against exousia, I think is the Greek word there, the powers. So he starts out by saying, there is an actual power, there is an actual ability, and there is an actual rulership that is demonic in nature, and it is very active here on planet Earth, and that's why the world does the things that it does. That's why the world resists righteousness and resists Christianity. That's why the world is holding down, pressing down righteousness. That's why the world is constantly opposing all things Christian, all things biblical. It's why the world runs in a completely contrary fashion to everything that the Bible describes as genuine righteousness. The reason that is happening is because the rulers, the principalities, the power that is active in this world is demonic, is dark, is corrupted. That's why the world is crazy. It's why the world is stupid. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers. The NASB translates the next phrase as against the world forces of this darkness. World forces is a good English translation of kosmokratos. The Greek word is a single word there, translated by two words in the English. And what it means, you heard the word cosmos in there, it means the world, same word that we're all familiar with, cosmos. And kratos, which is the evil influence of this world. And it is described as dark, as skotia, which is the Greek word for dark. And so he has just said that there are rulers and there are principalities and there are powers and there are world forces of darkness. Put that together in your head for a moment. There are world forces, worldwide forces. Because they are forces, they are not inert. They're not just waiting around. They are actually active forces in the world not forces for good, forces for darkness. Now, darkness all the way through the Bible is the opposite of light. How obvious is that? We who are Christians have been enlightened according to the Bible. So you see that contrast all the way through the Bible. Light, goodness, godliness, heavenliness is always equated with lightness. The world is described as laying in darkness. And the powers that are ruling this world, the forces that are driving this world forward are the world forces of darkness. Do you see why Paul thinks we need to be ready? We need to be prepared for this world? This world, in Paul's estimation, is so desperately dark and fallen that it's no wonder that it's so ungodly. It's no wonder that it is so contrary to biblical Christianity and biblical principles. It's no wonder. Look at what it is. It is ruled by principalities and powers of wickedness and darkness. 
And those are the powers that rule the world. The world powers of darkness. And then, as if that weren't enough, and had he stopped there, I think it would have been enough. But having described the planet, Paul then reaches out into the spiritual realm out into the heavenlies, out into the unseen realm, out into the stuff that is so far beyond this planet. And he describes our wrestling as being against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Try to conceive of that. Go ahead. You know, we see it so often in the Bible. We see stories where God calls together the sons of God. And Satan is among them. Or where he calls the demons together to try to find a lying spirit to go speak to all the prophets of Israel. They are still under the hand, under the dominion of a sovereign God. But they are still out there in the heavenlies actively working. And that's part of what we wrestle against is spiritual forces of wickedness. That word that is translated spiritual forces, actually forces is added by the NASB. It actually says in the Greek, pneumatikos would be the word for the spirituals. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about the spiritual gifts. Here he's talking about wicked spirituality, uses the same word and says pneumatikos of wickedness. So he is describing spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. The NASB adds the word places in heavenly places. But again, it's that single Greek word in the heavenlies. So let's take a look at Paul's list again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Everything that he describes is not flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against humanity. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against Rulers, princes, principalities, and powers against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual wickedness that exists out in the heavenlies. Okay, so that's what exists in terms of evil. And then there's you. You ready to fight that one on your own? You ready to charge into that one by yourself? Yeah, come at me. What you got? No, you'd be toast immediately. You're not ready for that. So that's why Paul would start with, be strong in the Lord. If you don't have the strength of the Lord on your side, you're going to fall for the same kind of darkness and wickedness that the whole rest of the world is engaging in at this very moment. How few people at this moment are thinking about the things of God, are reading the word of God, are caring about the word of God, and that same spiritual wickedness has infiltrated far too much of the church world. I won't go on about it. I think you can come up with your own examples, and most of you just did. Because there's a whole lot of tomfoolery, sorry, or Jim foolery, even Leon foolery, that is going on in the world right now in supposed churches that is craziness. It's not biblical. 
Why? Because there are spiritual, wicked, dark forces at work in the world, and you're no match for them, and so you have to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and knowing all that, verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. That's the second time he has told us that. It's the second time Paul has given us the instruction. In verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Then our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, that's a really well-placed therefore. Knowing what's going on out there in the heavenlies, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Not your own armor. Not the armor of your flesh, your cleverness, your decision-making ability, your will, your desire to be a self-made man. Instead, take up the armor that belongs to God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. The evil day, which day would that be? And pretty much every day. That's just all the time in this world. It is an evil age. The Bible refers to it as this present evil age. And it's going to remain a present evil age until the Prince of Peace is ruling on the planet. This age that we live in right now, it's just so obvious. I don't even have to make examples anymore. We see the evil everywhere around us. Look at the world we're living in right now as a result of what may very well have been a manufactured virus. How evil is that? It's just real easy to see the wickedness of this world. So we have to take up the armor of God so that we're going to be able to resist in this evil day. And then, having done everything, which I think is a reference to having taken up the full armor, every part of it, you can't leave any part out because they all have particular tasks, particular benefits in protecting you against the wiles and the schemes of the devil. So then, once you've taken on the full armor of God, Stand your ground, because now you're ready to engage the battle. But you're not ready to engage the battle till you've put on the armor. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then Paul says it a second time. Stand firm, therefore... Once you've got the full armor of God, don't back up. Don't give place to the devil. Don't give him ground. Stand against the wiles and the fiery darts of Satan. Stand firm, therefore. Having girded your loins, remember earlier as I was describing how a Roman soldier would be dressed, the first thing you would put on was the girdle around your waist that would protect your stomach, would protect your groin area, your hips. So you'd have that girdle on first, especially if you were going to put on any kind of metallic object 
on your body, you don't want that rubbing against your skin. The first thing you do is put on a waistband, a girdle to cover yourself. But Paul now makes an analogy of that and says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. That's the first step in standing against the wiles of Satan is that you gird yourself about with the truth. How do you do that? How do you gird yourself with the truth? Well, it starts with knowing the truth. You have to know what the truth is. How are you going to know what the truth is? By reading the word of God, studying the word of God. And because this is a daily battle, you have to gird yourself daily. You have to be engaged with the truth all the time. Because we forget stuff. We're forgetful as human beings. And the wiles, the temptations of the devil, are meant to draw us away from the truth, away from the word of God, away from the Bible. So part of our standing firm, fully dressed, is that we gird ourselves about with the truth of God. And we can only do that through that constant consumption of the word of God. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, by the way, that's Isaiah 11. And in a moment, Paul is going to make another reference from Isaiah, but it's not going to be from Isaiah 11. Paul is picking out phrases that he remembers that he has read in the scripture. That's where he's getting this theology. That's where he's getting this allegory, for lack of a better word. He's drawing it all right out of scripture. He's not making anything up. So he is stating what the scripture has already stated, which is that we need to be girded about with truth. That is a universally applicable principle in the Bible, that we need to be wrapped up in the truth. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on, the next piece you would put on is the breastplate that would cover your heart and cover your internal organs so that if the arrows fly at you, they bounce off because you have a piece of metal over your chest and over your vital bodily organs. But he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. He's obviously not talking about a literal chunk of metal that you're going to put on your chest. Instead, he's saying, once you are girded about with the truth, then walk in the truth so that you have the covering, covering your heart of genuine righteousness, godly righteousness. This is another one of Paul's demonstrations of the indicative and the imperative. Know the truth and then walk in the truth. Recognize what the truth is. And then walk it out, act like it. And he likens that to putting on a breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, you want something to protect your feet from the rocks and stony ground that you're going to be running on. So have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
Okay, there's a couple of phrases there that I really like. First off, gospel of peace. The good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ brings about irene, peace, the stopping of againstness. And the most important againstness that you have in this lifetime is your natural againstness toward God. The fact that you are naturally resistant toward all things holy and righteous and godly. So somebody has to overcome that againstness. You don't have the ability. Your flesh can't do it. And so God did it. God made peace between you and him by sending his son to die for you to take away your sin debt. And therefore you are at the present moment at peace with God. That's really, really good news. And so Paul can call it the gospel of peace. The reason that we preach the gospel, the reason that we tell people the gospel, the reason that we tell people about Jesus Christ and his finished work, the reason we tell people about a perfect Savior who saves perfectly, an absolute Savior who saves absolutely, the reason we say that he's the one who accomplishes it all by his sovereign ability and you don't have the ability to do it, the reason that we keep telling people that is because the result of it is Peace between you and God. And so Paul says that that gospel of peace is what we ought to have on our feet, which makes sense because Paul is the one who used his feet to go everywhere to tell the gospel of peace. So it makes sense that the gospel of peace would be on your feet. This is the same Paul who quotes from the Old Testament, quotes from Isaiah and says, how beautiful are the feet of those who publish glad tidings and good news. Beautiful feet. So he says, have your feet covered with that gospel of peace. So gird your loins with the truth, put on a breastplate of righteousness, and then cover your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all that, says verse 16, Take up a shield of faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in the finished work. Faith in everything that the Bible has to say. Now, of course, Jesus Christ, according to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. Paul agrees with that and says in this very letter, by grace are you saved, through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so clearly the biblical writers give Christ responsibility of providing faith to his people. But once we come to faith in Christ, we are then told to walk it out, to live by it, and to use it as a defense against the world and its philosophies, which are going to tell us so many things that are contrary to the Bible. And so at some point we have to take our stand and say, it doesn't matter what Darwin said. It doesn't matter what the philosophy of the world says. It doesn't matter what the worldview of wickedness and evil says. I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to protect myself against all your encroachments against me and my faith. I'm going to use this shield of faith. I'm going to use this shield to protect myself against the onslaught of the enemy ideas and philosophies and opinions and 
All of that's going to come flying at you. Why? Because it's a wicked world. How are you going to defend yourself? Wear your armor, lift up your shield. And that shield is faith in the word of God, regardless of what comes. I've told you before that my favorite definition of the word faith, am I talking really fast? It feels like I am. My favorite definition of the word faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. Because the circumstances of this life will try to make you believe that the Bible isn't true anymore. Somebody gets sick. Somebody dies. A child dies. It's so common to hear people then say, where is God in all this? Well, the Bible says, David writes in the Psalms, that when people say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's right. Okay, the child died. God was pleased in the great economy of God's eternity that that child would die at that moment. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he has planned. So you stand on the word of God. Okay, that's faith. You stand on the finished work of Christ. You recognize that only the finished work of Christ can bring peace between you and God. And you stand on that even as the world says, that's a crutch. You're a weakling. It's just that you can't stand up to the world such as it is that you need a crutch like that. We say, no, I know who I am and where I've been and what I'm capable of. And only Christ is going to make it okay for me in eternity. And I'm going to stand here on what I believe regardless of the slings and arrows that I take from other people and their opinions and their wickedness. You see how you use faith as a shield to protect you from the onslaught of the enemies that are coming out of this world? Take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. I think the King James there, instead of missiles, which is a very contemporary word, they say the fiery darts of Satan. And that's what it means. If you go into battle, anybody who's ever seen a Lord of the Rings movie has seen the epic battles and people shooting those flaming arrows down on the opposing army. That's exactly what Paul is describing because that warfare has been around for a long time, that mode, that means of warfare. And so he's saying that's what it's going to be like when Satan's satanically influenced world comes to attack you. It's going to be like they're standing on a wall firing down at you flaming darts. So you need to be ready to protect yourself and your shield of faith. Again, if you've watched any of those movies, as soon as those fiery arrows are flying in, what do they do? Duck down, hold up their shield. That's exactly what Paul's describing. When the fiery darts of Satan are coming your way, hold up your shield, which is faith. And then finally, you need a helmet to protect your head, protect your thinking, Protect your brain. And so you need to cover your heart, but you also need to cover your head and your ability to think. And how you think and what you think about. So Paul says, take up the helmet of salvation. The fact that you are saved. The fact that you know you are saved. And what are you saved from? 
You're not just saved from yourself. You're not just saved from your own sinfulness. You're not just saved from your own flesh. You are saved by God from the wrath of God. Amen. You're saved by God from God. And with that knowledge firmly in your head, protected, covered by the knowledge of salvation, he says that is a vital part of your suit of armor that you've got to wear to engage this battle. You have to recognize that you are saved, what you're saved from, who you were saved by, and that is part of how you will resist the temptations of this world of spiritual darkness, is having that knowledge in your head of salvation. So let's recover the defensive pieces of the suit of armor here. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, says verse 13, having done everything to then stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all that, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and for the first time, Paul is going to describe an offensive weapon. Everything else has been covering up and protecting yourself. But now he's going to offer you a weapon to fight back with. And the weapon he says you should fight back with is the sword of the spirit, which he then defines so that nobody gets to go all TBN-ish. Nobody gets to say, sword of the spirit? Why? He describes it as the word of God. This is the only offensive weapon you get. You resist the temptations of this world. You resist the fiery darts of Satan. You resist the darkness of the rulers of this present age on this planet. You resist all that through righteousness, through faith, through the gospel of peace. You resist all of that and you hold up your shield of faith in order to extinguish the fiery darts that Satan is sending your way. And when it comes time to fight back, how do you fight back? Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. He was hungry at the end of 40 days, fasting the whole time. Satan comes to him and tries to tempt him. And by the way, if Satan's got enough nerve to tempt the very word of God, you don't think he's going to come after you? And he says things to Jesus like, I can see you're hungry. Make these stones into bread. And then quotes the scripture. Because remember, he's been around a long time. He's been alive a long time. And he's perfectly willing to quote the scripture to you. Which will make you think, oh, well, he must be right. He's quoting scripture. Jesus corrects him with scripture in the proper context. Explained correctly. Satan's perfectly willing to use scripture and twist it a little bit 
in order to deceive you in order to get you off the mark in order to lead you astray only by knowing the Word of God properly contextually only by knowing the Word of God are you able to use it defensively and Jesus is your example he used the Word of God against Satan and when Satan saw three times that he couldn't get Jesus to bow down and worship him which was his ultimate goal when he couldn't do that anymore Jesus said go from me and just keep going okay so if Jesus would use Jesus the all-powerful son of God the one who spoke and nothing became everything that Jesus if his offense against Satan himself was the Word of God that's a clue you should be ready to use the Word of God in answer to this wicked world in answer to the temptations and the fiery darts of Satan when it comes time to fight back you fight back with the Word of God importantly if you fight back with your ideas your opinions your notions things that you came up with out of your creativity and you think that's gonna somehow be a weapon you can use against Satan at that moment he knows he's making inroads he's winning that battle if he's got you thinking that your flesh and your mind and your creativity is the way to fight with him go back to the Word of God back to the Word of God keep using the Word of God keep repeating the Word of God keep stating the Word of God keep advancing the Word of God keep publishing the Word of God keep preaching the Word of God because that is the weapon with which we collectively the Church of God on planet Earth that is the way that we fight back against the wickedness and the darkness of the rulers of this world and only the Word of God is a useful corrective tool there's no other weapon we've got no other weapon we've been given every other thing that Paul has listed has been a way of protecting ourselves against the onslaught the only way that we fight back against the onslaught is with the Word of God because the Word of God is true and lasts forever says it right here on the pulpit take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God then Paul says having done all that stand don't be moved don't be swayed stand on what you know stand on the Word of God stand on your faith stand on the gospel of peace don't give ground stand on what you know and add to all of that constant prayer constant communication with God constantly staying in touch with your father I know I've doesn't matter I was gonna say I know I've said it before doesn't matter that I've said it before because I'm now gonna say it again God the almighty omnipotent God the creator of heaven and earth the one who has plenty to do as he's busy keeping every nucleus of every atom spinning in the proper direction the same one who keeps every star in the heaven and can call them all by name and keeps them going in their orbits in other words he's got a lot to do and he's doing it on a constant basis without him keeping it going it would all just collapse on top of itself and he says come talk to me 
How? How do we ever ignore our ability to go to him, the master of everything, the only God of the universe? He says, come speak to me. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop it. Keep going back to God. Keep talking to him. Keep asking. Keep praying. Do it with thanksgiving. Do it as a sign of worship. Recognize who he is and what he means. Go to him and pray constantly. And so Paul's next instruction is to do all that, verse 18, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the spirit of God. And with this in view, with everything he's just told you about the way the world works and the way the Christian faith works, with all of that in view, be on the alert with all perseverance. Stick to it. Don't ever let up. Stand your ground and stand your ground and keep persevering. With all perseverance, you continue to pray to God. You keep going to God. You keep having faith and confidence in God and with petitions for all the saints. So not only do you go and pray for yourself in this battle, but you also go and pray for the rest of us in this battle. And then we collectively, the church of God on this wicked planet, we continue to persevere in the faith. And there's nothing and no one who can shake us from our knowledge of the Christian faith as we continue to stand on the word of God and stay in communion with God and continue to rest in God for our strength and our ability to continue in this faith. It's, it's all God who gets the glory. It's all God who gets the worship. And yet, despite that fact, Paul also says our responsibility is to recognize what this world is like and be ready to withstand this world. So having introduced prayer in verse 18, with all prayers and petitions, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance, that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am and this is such an interesting phrase for which I am an ambassador in chains I'm the one who is an ambassador on planet earth for Jesus Christ I am out preaching it and yet here I sit under Roman imprisonment in chains and yet I'm an ambassador to this planet to anybody looking at him whether under house arrest or whether in chains, in a hole in Rome, whether in a dungeon somewhere, anybody looking at him would have to say, well, you're pretty locked down. 2,000 years later, we're still reading the letters that he wrote during his imprisonment because he is an ambassador in chains. What a great phrase. And that means no matter who you are or what your circumstances are or where you are or how locked down you are, that means that even if the government comes and says, oh, well, that's it, virus, you all have to go home and lock your doors. 
we can still be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We can still put the word out. We can still continue proclaiming and publishing the word of God the same way that Paul did because this world and all its evil and all its lockdowns and all its opinions and philosophies cannot stop the word of God. It doesn't matter how many Christians it kills. The word of God keeps going forward. It doesn't matter whether the governments of the world try to suppress it as they're doing in pockets of this world to this very day, there's nothing anybody can do to stop an absolutely sovereign God from glorifying his son. And that's exactly what he's doing through the spread of Christianity on planet Earth. And we, we, wormy little, measly little we, us, we get to be part of that. This glorious plan of God determined since before the ages passed, that glorious plan, you are right smack dab in the middle of it. Ought to make you feel pretty good. It ought to give you the ability to stand and withstand and know that you're on the winning side and know that one day this battle is going to be over and I already know who the winner is. Someday, according to the book of Revelation, someday God is going to throw Satan into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't just win, he wins big. He eliminates his enemies. So we're on the side of eternal life. We're on the side of righteousness and holiness. We're on the side of the ever-living God. We have every reason, every inspiration to stand and not be swayed. I am an ambassador in chains, writes Paul, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So pray for me that I will have this boldness with my mouth to speak boldly the truth of God. Boy, if there was anybody who the world was ever trying to shut up, I mean, think of the influence Paul was having, even right there in Rome. All they were trying to do was get him to stop talking about this. After all, Caesar is God, and you're proclaiming this other God. Stop it. That's, I know what we'll do. We'll lock you in a prison. I know what we'll do. We'll put you in chains. I, just shut up. Paul from prison writes, pray for me that I may be more bold and say it louder to more people. That's the attitude of Christianity. Be bold. We're on the winning side. We're on the proper side. Stand firm and tell it and tell it and tell it. Verse 21 begins his actual closing of the letter. I mentioned to you at the beginning of this message an hour ago that Tychicus was the fellow that was carrying this letter who was also carrying the letter to Colossae but that you may know about my circumstances how I am doing Tychicus my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you and I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. So that's Paul's way of saying, I'm not going to write down the rest of the stuff, the stuff about me. Notice in this entire letter, 
He is just concentrated on the things of Christ. He's concentrated on the things of God. He's concentrated on proper doctrine, and proper Christian walking. He's concentrated on that when he could have filled this letter with himself. And he didn't do that. He said, look, I've sent Tychicus. He's got this letter. You read the letter. You spread the letter out to the other churches. And if you want to know anything about me, Tychicus knows me. He knows all about how I'm doing and what's going on. He'll comfort your hearts. He'll tell you that I'm fine under my circumstances. Because this is the same Paul who said, whatever circumstance I'm in, I have learned to be content. I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. I know how to be full. I know how to suffer lack. And I have found in whatever state I'm in to be content. So Tychicus is going to come tell you I'm okay even as I'm under Roman jurisdiction at this moment, even though I'm an ambassador in chains, I'm okay. He's going to comfort your heart and tell you I'm okay. But he didn't include it in the letter. Finally, he says, verse 23 and 24, peace to the brethren and love with faith. Those three elements, I think I could add grace to it, and Paul always does add grace to it. But aren't those the three elements that we ultimately want in our relationship with God and, our, and in our relationship with each other? We want peace among the brethren. We want sacrificial love toward each other as we look after each other and take care of each other. And faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, peace to the brethren and love with faith to the brethren. And where do those things come from? From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have God in your life, if you don't have Christ in your life, I don't care how smart you may think you are. You're never going to find real peace. You're never going to find real sacrificial love because you're going to be way too involved in your own ego and in your own self-aggrandizement. You're never going to find true grace, true humility if you don't have God and Christ in your life. Because peace for the brethren and love for the brethren and faith for the brethren all come from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then as Paul always does, he closes his letter with grace. Starts with grace. It ends with grace. Grace be to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. A love that doesn't change. By the way, I looked to my left at that moment and saw Leon say, Amen. There's a proper Amen right there. Peace to all the saints. And love uncorruptible. As we love each other, as we take care of each other, as we walk in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, there is a, not just a continuity to it, but there's a lack of worldly corruption to that. Because we're acting in ways that our flesh wouldn't naturally act. There is this incorruptible beauty to Christianity. There is this incorruptible wisdom to Christianity. There's this incorruptible eternal nature to Christianity. And if you have had the good fortune in this lifetime of having God choose you and enlighten you and quicken you and put his Holy Spirit inside you, that's something that he hasn't done for everybody. Recognize 
the remarkable grace of God that would do something like that for someone like you and then walk like it. Got it? Got it. Questions? Was that clear? Yes. The Word of God is that clear. All right, then. Turn in your hymnals to hymn number 17. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.